You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Also, Nathaniel, I really appreciate any time there's a good whistle solo. And Andy, I appreciate an attentive sound person who will throw some delay on it. Crushing it today. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I want to uh, start with, with one thing. I have a suspicion. Uh, I suspect that um, there are some of you, when the sermon text was read, and it began with, my joy is gone, my heart is sick, and grief is upon me, thought, okay, here we go, of course. This dude wears all black all the time. He's going to talk to us about his joy is gone. His, his heart is sick. Um, I want to say two things to that. One is I'm actually a very happy person. I like cutting up and being silly. Uh, two, there weren't like better options this week. Um, like you saw the gospel text, right? Uh, featuring the phrase from our Lord. So I say to you, make friends for yourselves of dishonest wealth. I don't know what to do with that. And I'm not going to pretend to know what to do with that to preach a sermon to you. <laughs> you know, like the closest thing that even pings in my brain when I hear that is a story from a beloved professor who ended up becoming Nathaniel's father-in-law, Emily's dad. Uh, he talked about being an interim at a church one time, and he had this, this uh, proposition for a Give God a Chance Sunday. Give God a Chance Sunday, have you heard this story? Yeah. Give God a Chance Sunday was a, uh, a plan to pool all of the offerings one week and then to buy Powerball tickets with it because Powerball was really high. And then <laughs> give God a chance. They did not like it. Uh, and, I mean, you could propose it to finance teams, see what they think. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying you could. I don't think they'd go for it, but there's only one way to know. Um, but anyway, so we are going to be in Jeremiah today. Yes, it's a little heavy. But I want to tell you, this is a sermon about hope. So tune your ears to hope. Okay? All right. We shall begin. Uh, I would hope that when we begin something that picks up with, like, my joy is gone, my heart is sick, etc., we have some alarm bells going off in our heads, namely saying, oh, something has occurred. Like, there's context for this. This man didn't just spontaneously lose all his joy and hope and whatnot. So we're going to pick up with some context. We find ourselves in Judah in the 590s BCE. We are uh, coming up to the point where the temple is destroyed and they're taken into exile in Babylon. And this is where we find Jeremiah as a prophet who's rising up trying to get them to change their ways so this doesn't happen. That's what prophets do. They have this like burden from God, this fire in their bones to offer some sort of critique to the powers that be to pull them back into the line of view of like the people of God. And they pretty much never listen to him except for like in Jonah. And then they listen and he's mad about it. So I don't know what you do with that. But this is where we find ourselves. So we might be curious about like, okay, well, what, what's the problem? What are they doing wrong that he's critiquing? Spoilers, it's always the same stuff, like again and again throughout all the prophets, because um, the people of God keep making the same mistakes. And we could laugh at that, but we're the same way. Uh, the important thing is that God sticks with them through all these things. But if we back up a little bit, we'll find stuff like this. We'll find, oh no, they are not receiving foreigners with hospitality and dignity. And this is a big problem because God is very clear. You were once a stranger in a strange land, and thus you will embrace the stranger in my name. This is fundamental to being the people of God. But they're not doing it. What else are they doing? Well, they're not taking care of the poor. The people in their society who can't provide for their own needs, they're leaving it up to themselves. And this is actually a really big deal. The Amos text today, 
<laughs> one of the reasons I didn't pick it is because I didn't know how to improve upon it. It's pretty straightforward. The Amos text today goes like this. <clears throat> you are not caring for the poor. And not just that, your whole economic system is set up to keep the rich powerful and the poor desperate, and God doesn't like it. God doesn't like it at all. That's the end of the text. <laughs> and it's not a surprise, because this is actually like the number two thing God's mad about in the Old Testament. It's again and again and again. You're not taking care of the poor? Well, that sort of fundamental thing is a part of the identity of the people of God. This is a problem. It's second only to idolatry which oftentimes idolatry will have some tendrils in to not taking care of the poor. So, of course, this is in this list. So we've got not taking care of the foreigner, not taking care of the poor, and then, of course, we find idolatry. So we've got these people who um, are in sort of a henotheistic society. That means this. They believe that God is God, and yet, in their normal lives, there's other gods out there. So whereas they're supposed to be getting all their safety and security and provision from God, well, that takes a little bit of faith and a lot of waiting and very little control. But you never know who might be hungry, and such and such deity over here, if you throw a sacrifice their way, you're going to get a harvest. So this becomes a way to take power into their own hands, to seek out their own needs for safety and security. And believe it or not, God doesn't like that. So we find Jeremiah offering these critiques when we approach chapter 8, okay? Um, and who's he offering this to? This is a time where power is sort of central, but it's sort of two things. You've got the temple with all the religious leaders, and then you have the monarchy with the king. But it's also wrapped up in together. So he's offering these things that are sort of theological critiques, but it's received as um, political discourse. So he actually is treated like a political dissident, and then he ends up in jail, which is sort of what happens with prophets and Jesus. They're either like imprisoned or killed or both. So I guess it's not that surprising. But all I have to say He's up against some pretty big powers, and he's not like a powerful person himself. They have no reason to listen to this man. He's just complaining. So they don't. In fact, they don't just not listen to him. They counter-message him. We find shortly before the passage that we pick up in, they're saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Everything's fine. Can't you see? Our needs are met. We've got a good thing going here, and God's on our side. And Jeremiah is like, well, you're not at God's side, and this is actually going to get pretty nasty if you don't change things soon. But they don't listen to him. And then, like, the people who are gathered around them aren't listening either, really, because, of course, they're getting a pretty good message from the people that they trust in power. Peace. Peace. When there is no peace. Peace sounds pretty good. You know? They got a good thing going. I imagine if we were to pull the foreigners and the poor in the midst, they might think Jeremiah was saying something that sounded a bit more like good news. But alas... We pick up in Jeremiah 8. This is the place we find Jeremiah. He's been trying to no avail to get these people to listen because great tragedy is going to befall them. And that's when we find him saying, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Where are you, God? For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Like, is there somewhere that help might come from? Why, then, has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people, 
and go away from them, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. We find Jeremiah sort of tired of beating his head against the wall, and he's completely undone mentally, emotionally, by this fact. The powers that be and the systems that need to change in order for this great calamity to be avoided have no interest in changing, and he can't make them change. And he's done. We find him asking for two things. He wishes his eyes were a fountain. You know, he had better crying equipment so we could cry an appropriate amount of tears for this great tragedy, this inhuman amount of tears. And then we ask, we find him asking for like some place he could just run away, just to make it not his problem anymore. He's done. I know we've got a lot of folks here with a touch of the prophetic, a little activist fire in your bones, and I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. I just want to observe that's a really lonely place to be, but you're in good company. Commentators call this moment, this fountain of tears, the ministry of grief, the ministry of tears, the ministry of mourning. You'll find it different ways, which is a really interesting thing. It's got layers to it. Like on the one hand, it's sort of like performance art. Like he's just out completely coming undone to put on display the gravity of the situation over against the powers that be saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And there's another way that's similar to that that's like, He's putting on display the fact that, like, the powers that be, the systems that be, aren't interested in changing course. And the impact of that is mainly going to affect the people who are trusting them of their society. He's putting on display the fact that their lives matter. He's weeping to no end. And I think that's an important thing. It's not like Jeremiah or any prophet is, like, on their high horse just saying, like, you're doing bad things and you're going to get what you deserve, you know. He's got skin in this game. Their pain is his pain, and it makes it all worse. But I think that there's another valence on this ministry of tears thing. Um, I don't know your relationship to emotions. I assume that you have them in that you're human. Uh, but we have, like, different ways of, that we're encouraged to relate to emotions. Like, perhaps they're, like, this <laughs> emotions happen. It's really inconvenient. We have to, like, push them to the side. Like, I'm trying to do something right now, you know? Um, or like, you know, in our culture, there's certain things that we're encouraged to do that to, like anger. Nobody wants you to walk around being angry, so you need to stuff it in a box. The problem is, that's volatile material. Do not do that. That's going to explode somewhere. Probably in a context that you really wish that it hadn't. But I wonder if uh, we might think of emotions a little bit differently, instead of a nuisance as a gift, as messengers, as ministers to us. I'm going to throw some uh, slide on the screen. This is uh, some questions that we might imagine these emotions bring to us. Emotions are like, think about it as like processing data that your brain isn't really conscious of and trying to draw your attention like, hey, something's up in the world around you. Perhaps they offer us these questions that we can enter into a dialogue with. Like anger perhaps is asking us, what needs to be protected or restored? What do I value? And if we can use that as a prompt, to think like, oh, what needs to be protected, restored, etc. Like, you go from this raw emotion to sort of a constructive dialogue that can turn into action. So that like feeling it all the way through turns into actually something pretty concrete. Or like shame and guilt. Who has been hurt? What must be made right? You get the idea. 
you're, you're led into a vision of a way forward by taking time for these things rather than just pushing them down until they explode. Um, you can, if you want this, you can take a picture or I can send it to you. I don't know if you find this helpful or not. I do, uh, but we'll move on. Um, so I have been in therapy for like seven years, um, and credit where credit is due. My therapist, Dr. Rod Hetzel, gave me these. He insisted that I make it clear that he did not come up with these, though he doesn't remember where he got them. So I just want to say Dr. Hetzel came up with these. Um, but yeah, therapy was, has been a great time. I went not because anything was wrong. It was just like, I was 26 and I was a pastor and I had this sense that I should go ahead and start working on my stuff as I'm like coming alongside of people and trying to offer them pastoral care. It would probably at the very least be a little bit better if less of my stuff was in the way. So I did that. And one thing I learned pretty quickly is sometimes in therapy, tears come to visit and I really don't like crying um, or I didn't. Uh, so the, the sort of work I had to do was to make space to actually just let myself cry when I was upset about something. So, you know, after a while, I did. I felt quite good about myself. I could sit and just let it flow. But then I guess we moved to phase two because one day <laughs> Rod looked at me and he said, Jamie, what are the tears saying? And I was like inside, had this explosion that was just like, don't ask me about my feelings. <laughs> Which is, like, I'm paying this man to ask me about my feelings, but I hated it. But I played along, you know, and we've done it many times since. It's a game we like to play. What are the tears saying? Sometimes the most appropriate response is a single four-letter word. Sometimes it's like I've come up with a philosophical discourse trying to make sense of where these tears came from. That's a nice trick to stay inside my brain and not have to deal with the feelings. But I found, and then sometimes it's stuff like gratitude, you know, it's not all bad. But I found something interesting pretty consistently when it's the tears of the nature that we're talking about with like Jeremiah here. There's actually a pretty concise message I find is often appropriate. And it's this. It's not supposed to be this way. Just that. It's, it's not supposed to be this way. Which if you sit with that for a little bit becomes sort of interesting. Because you know, you might observe, well, it is in fact this way. How else might it be? And then you can begin to envision a world where things are otherwise and how that world works and how you might be in that world. And then you might be foolish enough to try and embody that world in this world. See what happens. Sort of have a, a way forward that came out of just thinking about the fact that it's not supposed to be this way. Walter Brueggemann says it like this. This is kind of a lengthy quote, but I think it all belongs. If Jeremiah had not spoken, and we've got it on the screen too, yeah, yeah. If Jeremiah had not spoken the despair of this poem, it would not have been verbalized anguish, but would have become immobilizing, unexpressed rage. It would have stricken him and blocked any possibility of hope. Thus, the despair of this poem is not the antithesis or denial of hope. It's an essential door to hope. The poem speaks honestly to God. It speaks honestly for God. It speaks honestly about the human prospect. But human speech has this strange power. It liberates, brings to expression, releases, and permits movement beyond. After the speech of despair, neither God nor Jeremiah is as fully despairing. 
They can move on to other things, free from the hopelessness of the human prospect and freed for the new thing from God. I conclude that tamed cynics and chastened radicals, if they are to continue their vision of an alternative world, must find concrete ways of giving voice to their despair. That's also likely the despair of God. It's the utterance of the hopeless poem that creates the rhetorical, psychological, theological possibility of hope. It's as though Jeremiah coming to terms with the despair of this moment where the change that he's trying to advocate for is controlled by systems he has no control over, that have no interest in changing, that he's able to give up in some way that broken hope, and then is open to jump into the buoyancy of the hope of the one who makes a way where there is no way. The one who makes a way where there is no way. That's a, a sort of label we get for God from Exodus. You likely know this. I'm just going to catch you up. It's this moment where the people of God are enslaved in Egypt. And God delivers them from this, this impossible situation. And they come to this moment where their way is blocked. And then a way appears where there's no way. It's pretty straightforward. But this becomes a like, fundamental identifying piece for the people of God. Not just for themselves, but as they describe God, it's who God is and it's who we are. And they reference it over and over again, but not just reference it, we find it reduplicated, mirrored in some way. They constantly come up against these situations where there's no way forward, and then lo and behold, a way appears where there was no way. We follow it through, Jeremiah mentions it at some point, we follow it through to Jesus. That's the story that he carries within himself about who God is and who he is. And then we blow the whole concept wide open in the resurrection, talk about a way where there is no way. And so it is with us. This is the story that we carry, the story that we cling to, the sorts of tale that faith is wrought out of. And I imagine, if you think back over your life in ways great and small, you can think of these moments where, like, a way appeared where there was no way. You couldn't see a way forward, you got through. And maybe you haven't had those moments, but you likely will at some point. We find ways appearing where there are no ways. So what does Jeremiah do? He's, he's caught up in this new idea of hope. Um, he sort of keeps doing the same thing. <laughs> he's had this moment of where he just lays it out there and then is maybe energized with this new vision. But it looks very similar. He's still, like, warning people of the great tragedy to come. Um, it's almost as though he's, <laughs> he's uh, like, sure of the little he can control. But in the little he can control, he's like fully present in it. But maybe the outcome shifts a little bit. Maybe he's not expecting it to make a difference. Maybe he's doing it just because that's the truest, the most beautiful thing he can do in response to the hope that he has. Is to stand up and critique these power systems anyway. But either way, over time, it begins to transform him further. And I, I imagine, you know, Jeremiah is thought of as this weeping prophet. This isn't the one time he has his release valve, you know. Um, but over time, being exposed to this sort of hope of a way being where there is no way, his message starts to change. And he stops talking about this, this coming tragedy as like the worst thing that could happen. And it's like this terrible thing that's going to happen. But then with that, mysteriously, suddenly the worst thing isn't the last thing in his mind. 
he's able to cast this vision of buoyant hope over into that reality. And he starts talking like this. He starts saying, like, when you go into exile, build houses and live in them. Get married, have babies, plant vineyards, get jobs, have parties. Seek the welfare of the city. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and they don't end here. That's a radically transformed mind from the one that we encountered earlier. But having opened himself to truly experience the despair of the moment, to find that his hopes are placed in things that are not going to change, he's opened up for the imagination of God to find the way where there is no way. So I wonder how this finds you today. I wonder um, you know, what, how this will find you in the coming days. I imagine for some of you, uh, you feel pretty close to Jeremiah um, in terms of trying to advocate against systems or powers that really have no interest in listening to you, that you can't control. You feel pretty defeated. I hope that this offers some sort of way forward for you. Um, and then more broadly than that, maybe there's those of us who are just experiencing sort of overwhelm, a situation that feels just too big, sort of amorphous. And this might invite us into a realm of imagination to really acknowledge how bad it is <laughs> and then find ourselves caught up in a potential new thing. There's others of us that I imagine just that slide I put up about emotions earlier is still chewing on that, and it's like, oh, well, I wonder if I can apply this. I'm sort of in that spot, <laughs> even though I've been thinking about it a long time, to receive emotions as like messengers or ministers in some way, the engine of change in some way. And then I'm sure that there's somebody among you who's still thinking about give God a chance Sunday, and that's fine too. <laughs> But UBC, in our ordinary lives moving forward, may we be a people who grieve and who grieve well, who open ourselves to the uncomfortable weight of emotions we'd rather not be dealing with, to allow them to speak to us, to minister to us, and leave us with open arms that we might be caught up in and embraced by the buoyancy of the hope of the one who makes all things new, who makes a way where there is no way. Amen. We'll take a moment now of silence as the, the spirit shapes us as we receive these things. And then Nathaniel will continue on with music. <laughs>